Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. I'm Monica Wesley. This podcast is recorded on November 24th, 2020. And joining me today from Uppsala University is Per Ola Carlson. Um, he is Professor of Medical Cell Biology and a Senior Consultant in Endocrinology and Diabetology at Uppsala Hospital. Welcome, Per Ola. Thank you for joining us. Pleased to be here. Um, I just wanted to, you know, do a little bit of an intro. Can you give a quick, you know, or a thumbnail, not really quick, but a thumbnail sketch about uh, how you got into diabetes research and sort of your, your path to get there? Actually, I started very, very early on when I was about 20 years old uh, as a student in the lab uh, during med school. So it was during uh, vacations uh, in med school. I started with projects in the lab and uh, then I escalated and got teaching for younger medical students and so on. And after a while I, I understood that I had the capacity to generate a PhD thesis and, and I had set to the ground for it by just doing this kind of vacation work. So uh, that was the start. So has the whole thing pretty much been a vacation then? <laughs> uh, actually, it has been, uh, uh, after med school, I did a couple of years, three years, uh, full-time uh, research, finishing my PhD. Uh, normally, it's a four-year period, so I had uh, gained one year uh, during the med school period. Uh, and then I um, thereafter went into internship and, and, uh, and residency. And, and uh, in parallel with that, built my own research group. And that was the toughest, I would say, because then I had five PhD students on my own while doing residency. So that was uh, ra rather hectic. But um, yeah, understatement of the year. I'm but, sure. but, but I think that uh, I established a couple of methods during my PhD, which, uh, which I, of course, used them uh, to, to uh, produce uh, research during the upcoming years. And, and actually, uh, when I finished my residency, I got a professorship. So it was very uh, timely. And, and once again, I had some more time to spend in the lab. <laughs> That's great. Um, and then once, um, once you were setting up your lab, you know, you, did you initially sort of gravitate towards the whole, you know, what was your initial approach that you were, you know, gravitating towards? Were you really interested in the whole islet uh, transplant space or was it more individual cellular? I mean, you're, you're, you know, professor of medical cell biology, so you're cell biologist. So what, what was really sort of drawing you forward in the beginning? Actually, my thesis work was centered on islet microcirculation. Uh, I, I applied quite a lot of surgical techniques uh, to study islet microcirculation. Uh, and both in type 1, type 2, diabetes smaller, but also general physiology. But then after my PhD thesis, I thought, hmm, I need to, to get a slight different path uh, when compared to my old supervisor. So uh, then I uh, went into islet transplantation and experimental islet transplantation, used the same technology to look at engraftment of the tissue after transplantation. There I had that possibility to use a lot of uh, physiological techniques that uh, I think was at that time not available in any other lab actually. Yeah. 
it was very um, new, I'd say, and a, and a new approach. I think, um, you know, when we talk about the work that's being done in your area of expertise, you know, can you kind of frame your work in the context of it? Yeah, uh, at that time I did solely experimental work and um, of course we had some translational approaches using human tissue for experimental eyelid transplantation and used uh, sites that was clinically used as the intraportal site and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, over the years and particularly after that I finished my uh, residency, I moved into more clinical studies and tried to then uh, use uh, the platform I had also as a clinician to translate uh, early phase concepts into clinical trials. And therefore, uh, and also that was the time period, I think, uh, moving from uh, eyelid transplantation into more stem cell research, yeah. uh, and also trying to, to, to uh, pave a way for, for, for introducing stem cell therapies in the clinic, actually. Yeah, really, I mean, your, your career has sort of um, gone right alongside really the, the frontier of, of um, eyelid transplant. And I mean, you've been at the forefront really of the whole thing. So it's, it's very exciting to hear, you know, how, um, how you got into it. And, and basically, I would really be interested in discussing some of the, you know, what, you, uh, what, are, what are some, um, what's going on in some of these papers that you've got out? I mean, you've got this got a couple of interesting avenues going on, and not just a couple, you've got many, but uh, this one paper, this GABA regulation uh, regulates release of inflammatory cytokines from the PMBM cells and the CD4 plus T cells is immunosuppressive in T1D. That came out in Lancet in 2018. Um, where did that, you know, um, you know uh, research go? Actually, uh these kind of studies are prepository actually to generate a hypothesis. Is this a viable strategy to apply uh, clinically as a therapy for type 1 diabetes patients? And uh, the concept of GABA is actually that uh, the one of the major autoantibodies to, uh, uh, in type 1 diabetes is GAD antibodies, yeah. and that actually prevents GABA formation in in, uh, uh, yeah, in cells uh, like beta cells. Beta cells have a lot of GABA normally. That is probably then decreased uh, in numbers in, in uh, type 1 diabetes before the cells eventually die. And, uh, but if you would like a therapy to, to restore uh, GABA in beta cells, you would also need to have some form of uh, intervention towards the immune system. So, GABA is a quite interesting strategy that uh, we have published in two different papers, actually, uh, that uh, it affects both when the uh, cytokine production from PBMCs decreases it and also decreases the proliferation of T cells, uh, especially in type 1 diabetic patients, and simultaneously also affect beta cells and beta cell function. Uh, and there has also been other studies, not by my group, uh, but, but by the Kaufman group, for, uh, for example, that have looked at uh, beta cell proliferation, human beta cell proliferation is increased uh, when exposed to GABA, both in vitro and in vivo. So we have actually launched, um, and then that study is ongoing, a first clinical intervention trial uh, with GABA 
and that is then produced as a medical drug because in the EU, GABA is classified as a drug, uh, not as a food supplement as I think it is in the US. Yes, that's true. So we have to do a uh, proper dose escalating uh, tr first trial part and then go into a blinded phase two uh, part now. And so and, this uh, is, uh, okay, sorry, I was just gonna say, so has it always, has it been interesting um, I mean, we can talk a little bit about Remagen, right? So with that? Yeah, that is actually what uh, the GABA drug is called. Uh, it's called Remagen. It's, uh, of course, then a, a candidate as a drug, a drug candidate uh, that is produced by a, a company that I collaborate with, but they haven't used it yet. It has uh, only been produced for uh, our investigative initiated study then. And uh, in the first part uh, where we have used the dose escalating trial, uh, those uh, results have been released. And we have some quite interesting results this far, uh, seeing that uh, when we do a hypoglycemic clamp, uh, giving insulin to the patients, we have a much better uh, um, uh, response with glucagon, uh, growth hormone, cortisol, adrenaline to rise the glucose levels once again. So it seems that GABA may induce a protection to hypoglycemia and that we hope to confirm in the larger study where the main focus though is to see if we can uh, regenerate beta cells. That's fascinating. You know, it's always been sort of striking to me like how is the immune system recognizing GAD when it is intracellular? It's, it's like just right below the plasma membrane in the beta cells. Do you have any hypotheses about that? Yeah, well, it might of course be that there is some other trigger to initial beta cell detraction that exposes uh, GAD antigen to the blood and, and then the autoantibodies rise. So I, I think it may be an initial event, a virus event or whatever that causes the exposure and then there is an, uh, an induced uh, uh, attack then by antibodies and T cells, of course. Um, so this sort of gets uh, caught up in the exocytosis as the virus takes over and then is exposed to the outside world, maybe. Yeah, I, uh, we have actually seen that uh, uh, in our studies that there is a uh, proportional uh, proportionality between uh, the GAD antibodies uh, tighter and uh, the GABA levels in blood so that the GABA levels uh, are lower in individuals with very high GAD teachers mm. and, and vice versa. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, th well, that's very cool research. We hope it continues. Um, I, you know, the last I saw it was Remagen, um, which Diamond makes is progressing in trials one too. So we'll see. Um, you know, hopefully that will just all continue um, in that arm of research. I also wondered about, you know, this next, um, this next paper that came out in February in Frontiers in Immunology, mass cytometry studies of patients with autoimmune endocrine diseases real distinct disease-specific alterations in immune cell subsets. So that's a mass cytometry-driven paper that uh, it looks like Daniel Espies was in on that. And what, what can you say, how can you, um, you know, sort of educate us on that work? Actually, uh, we know that uh, a lot of endocrine autoimmune diseases are closely linked. Uh, they often uh, occur in the same individuals, but there are also, of course, 
distinct patients that have different diseases. And in this paper, we looked at individuals with only one disease and compared the immunological situation in those to see if, if there are differences uh, between which endocrine disease they are uh, having or if it is only random uh, and they all have when compared to controls the same uh, immunological changes and, and there was disease specific changes between these uh, diseases that were uh, rather typical. Uh, it was Hashimoto which is hypothyroidosis, it was a grave thyrotoxicosis, it was uh, uh, newly diagnosed type 1, uh, long-standing type 1, and Addison disease we were looking at. So you kind of got the landscape um, using mass cytometry. Yeah, so it was more also a descriptive study to lay uh, the ground for further uh, studies and also try to, uh, to, to understand how to, to uh, intervene in the end. Those kinds of studies are really important um, because, I, you know, as we know, that diabetes is very uh, heterogeneous uh, in terms of its presentation and the progress to get there. So I think it'll be great. Sorry for your dog. I just wanted to uh, let's just talk about the one last one um, with this. I, this one came out in May 2020. J immunology IL35 producing antigen um, presenting cells in T1D. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. What what's going on there? Actually, we have done several studies on IL-35, uh, and that uh, was actually one of, uh, uh, one of the former PhD students, Kailash Singh, that has really worked on this uh, matter. He is now a postdoc in Cambridge. I think he's uh, conti uh, uh, continuing these research lines. And IL-35 is very interesting because uh, it is uh, uh, immunomodulatory cytokine, which is uh, mainly immunosuppressive actually. It has been shown in other autoimmune disease to be able to uh, reverse disease. Uh, and uh, we therefore decided to test it in type 1 diabetes and, and also uh, have then tested in different animal models to start with, uh, both nod mice, uh, classical multistreptosotocin mice. We have also looked at the uh, at the mechanism then, and in this paper you referred to specifically, we looked at uh, uh, the effects of IL-35 of, on dendritic cells and other antigen presenting cells to see if IL-35 uh, could uh, decrease the antigen presentation, which it, which it did. Actually, we have also done clinical studies uh, with IL-35 and observed that IL-35 levels were much higher in uh, subjects that uh, had remaining C-peptide for decades after the debut of disease, while those that uh, had no C-peptide at all that we could measure with very sensitive C-peptide assays, those had lower uh, IL-35 levels. And that was actually the only difference that we could see uh, uh, after scanning for a lot of cytokines. Uh, this, was, this was the difference. And we have actually considered if this could be a, a, a drug based on IL-35. Yeah. It is a rather difficult uh, cytokine actually because it's a dimer uh, uh, cytokine which makes it difficult to, to produce as a medical drug. We have had yeah. uh, discussions with companies here uh, and uh, this far we haven't been lucky to, to have someone on board that 
would like to embark on, on trying to produce this. Dimer is tricky. Uh, it's tricky to make yeah. a drug with that. But it is, um, yeah, it's very, that's very interesting. And again, you know, sort of setting the stage for the landscape of who's got what. And I think as these uh, observations and papers come out to sort of show um, the, the differences in the population, you know, the more, more data is better. So it's very, it's, it, and your lab has been so um, prolific in contributing to the landscape of the, of the disease. So it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I was, oh, sorry. It could also be, of course, that we could find some drug that affects IL-35 levels and instead of using IL-35 itself, that could be a strategy here. So it's also something to, to investigate as possible mechanisms in different uh, intervention studies, I think. Yeah, maybe some nanomedicine, um, something like that. I think, um, yeah, hopefully that'll, that'll continue. I wanted to just sort of shift gears for a minute and ask about how your um, encapsulation studies are progressing um, with, you know, sort of the vascularization part of it and the beta air device. How's that, how is that um, arm of things going? Actually, uh, my background was mainly to look at a free transplants of in islets and later on stem cell derived insulin producing cells and looked at the engraftment, uh, blood perfusion, oxygenization of tissues, and so on. And uh, doing that uh, and understanding the importance of, of proper vascularity for beta cell function, uh, I, I came in contact with beta Uto technologies many, many years ago, and actually um, uh, they had the idea on, on uh, generating oxygen within a, a capsule uh, to uh, help the tissue survive. And I think that was a totally necessary strategy for uh, uh, encapsulation, because if you don't uh, have oxygen uh, in a capsule, it will be problematic also with microencapsulation to have sufficient uh, oxygenization to have optimal beta cell function. The tissue may survive, but uh, but not uh, function normally. And especially if you go into macroencapsulation, which is the beta technology strategy, then it is definitely necessary to use oxygen. And that has been shown by them actually in a, a couple of experimental papers in rodents and also uh, I think in pigs. Uh, and then we uh, embarked on a clinical study a couple of years ago together. Uh, which we, we performed. And uh, that was actually the first study where we transplanted uh, human islets in a capsule uh, and uh, also uh, saw that the cells survived for three to six months. That was the study time that we had in the capsule. However, the function was poor. Uh, uh, and we believe that was mainly due to the kinetics matter, meaning that glucose sensing was poor, glucose did not diffuse rapidly enough into the capsule, and insulin did not diffuse rapidly enough out of the capsule. Uh, we could also see in some islet amyloid formation in the capsule that we, uh, and, uh, we think it could be a drainage matter of IAPP, actually. So all in all, uh, some positive, the cells survived, but the function were poor, 
now uh, the company is trying to uh, develop. I know that we have developed, but it has not been uh, tested yet in clinical use. Uh, a second generation device where they try to address these matters for a new clinical trial, actually. Great, that's excellent. Hopefully that'll continue. We are, we are putting together here at the Sugar Science, we're putting together a, um, a forum, we call it sort of um, off the record. And we have this sort of uh, just a, a really relaxed uh, brainstorming conversation. You know, it's totally off the record. It's almost like, you know, after hours at the Gordon Conference um, where people can just share ideas. It's not formalized and there's no, you know, and afterwards people just, scientists just decide what they're going to, you know, some keywords that uh, describe what was spoken about and then they, and others can sort of say, oh, that's interesting. So-and-so was there. I'll reach out and have another conversation. So the next one we're going to do is called um, Island Implants, uh, Lessons from Placental Development. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is your thought on how the lessons or, you know, the, the development of the placenta might yield some insight into better practices for eyelid implantation? Actually, um I think this is an interesting uh, phenomenon looking at the fetus that survives despite having uh, another uh, genotype than, than the mother. Yeah. And, um, and this is something that we may learn quite a lot from, I think. Um, we have considered this, um, we have work with mesenchymal stromal cells, which is uh, um, um, cell type uh, that is uh, similar more or less to the deciduous cells mm -hmm. in the umbilical cord. There are uh, the quite Wharton's. a number of mesenchymal stromal cells. This is from the Wharton's cells. jelly, right? Yeah, in the Wharton's jelly. Uh, so, and these kind of cells, they, they have been known for for decades to be immunomodulatory or even immunosuppressive, and they have been tested uh, in. Uh, rather many small studies, uh, particularly for graft versus host disease, meaning that they have tested other researchers then if uh, they can protect the body from being rejected by a new bone marrow. These are life-threatening uh, events, of course, yeah. and these uh, uh, cells are then tested as a last resort uh, after that uh, uh, cortisone, corticosteroids, uh, cyclosporin and so on have failed actually. And I, I know that they have also been uh, approved uh, uh, as a third line of, of strategy um, of, on this indication. We started uh, 10 years ago or so with uh, mesenchymal stromal cells from bone marrow actually and performed the first clinical study in type 1 diabetes patients. We gave it as an intravenous infusion and uh, followed the patients for one year to see if uh, type 1 diabetic patients could have preserved beta cell function during this time period uh, and also had a positive effect compared to an open control group. Uh, after that, uh, we tried to actually to go further on with a phase two, a uh, larger phase two study. But um, then it is also so that uh, these kind of cells, like uh, many other cell types, uh, are nowadays ATMP. Yeah. Uh, and it is difficult to produce enough cells and also characterize the cells if you use bone marrow. Uh, and we did it then autologously in the first study. Uh, so nowadays we work instead with uh, 
a company called Nexcel Pharma, which produces yeah. these cells from Walton's jelly, as you mentioned. And uh, then uh, you can take a, a lot of cells uh, only by um, uh, only from from a, a couple of of, uh, uh, of passages. You have very many cells, and you can also pool Walton uh, jelly umbilical cords from different. Uh, uh, subjects, meaning that you will have a quite reproducible uh, ATMP. Okay. And we have now uh, studied this ATMP called ProTrans uh, and uh, performed similar studies we did with the bone marrow drive stem cells. And uh, uh, we actually got the same results. We uh, maintained the insulin production for at least a year uh, in the two higher doses we tested. Uh, and uh, we also have performed then a placebo controlled study here uh, and saw the same effect actually. Yeah, this is the, pa I, I actually just saw that bulletin. It was a news bulletin that came out of uh, Uppsala, um, you know, kind of highlighting your work and saying that, you know, in plant, there's plans for a 2021 study and that will include uh, T1D children. So that was pretty exciting. Do you want to talk a teeny bit about that? Yeah, uh, I could say that we have also an ongoing study where we uh, give it repeatedly these kind of cells with an, uh, uh, after one year to see if we can sustain the effect. And since we had more or less no adverse events, uh, not, no obvious at all actually, uh, we have decided, the company has decided to go into phase three uh, on adult population, 18 to 40 years with type 1 diabetes as we used in the first studies. Uh, while I uh, have uh, uh, thought of doing an investigator initiated study, we get the cells from the company for free, but then uh, uh, the rest we, we pay, of course, and then try to do a first study in children and adolescents. Uh, we will test different ages, uh, and, but uh, uh, if everything looks nice and safe, we aim to go down to seven years old as, as the youngest age. Um, more or less similar approach as we did before, uh, studying over a one-year period to see if we can sustain insulin production. And so um, just in terms of, is there a cutoff date? I mean, if, you, if a patient has had, you know, uh, diabetes for, you know, four years, five years, seven years, 10 years, are they um, still um, able to enroll in this study? Uh, we decided that... Uh, uh, for the adult studies, we have selected that they should be within two years of debut mm -hmm. uh, and also have a, a C-peptide uh, and insulin production that is about uh, more than 10% remaining, more or less. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a cutoff level in uh, 0.12 nanomole per liter of C-peptide. Uh, okay. And we will have the similar uh, numbers for, for uh, children, but there, I guess we will have to decrease the uh, Debut, uh, durations is debut to about six months because they they uh, they uh, decrease more rapidly in their C peptide. So it's not that uh, much worth to try to include uh, patients that have had the diagnosis for one to two years because then they had uh, lost so much that it's, it's not so much to save actually. Mm. Yeah. And then, I mean, hypothetically, you might be able to. Um, treat patients even earlier when they present with one or two 
biomarkers, right? Um, you know, if this, if all goes well, then maybe you can start getting into that, into those weeds. Yes, actually, this study, this first study is uh, uh, headed by us, but we will try to do it at two other centers in Sweden, uh, with Johnny Ludvigsson in Linköping and also Helena Elding Larsson in, in, uh, in um, Scania, Malmö. And, and uh, Helena is uh, a part of this TEDDY study, uh, where they screen actually, and uh, that could be uh, uh, the road to go then for uh, the next study thereafter, hypothetically, if we have positive results, to intervene before debut of disease when uh, you have two autoantibodies and so. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, you could uh, envisage that we screen also patients uh, more broadly in Sweden for, for this. And also yeah. in the end in other countries. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys will lead the way, I think. Um, and, and, and rightly so. I think that. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a, a real strong interest in, um, in addressing um, patients in the, the Nordic countries have, have more type 1 diabetics. And, uh, you know, I mean, when kids get this very early, it's a whole lifetime of this maintenance, which is so difficult. So, yeah, I hope you can lead the way. It would be really great. Um, I wanted to know about sort of scaling. You know, you have several different arms of... Um, research and when it comes to scaling the technology uh, has that been you know difficult or is it do you feel that there's a streamlined path in sweden uh to help scientists sort of really get um, their ideas to the clinic and and then to industry or how does that how is that working well there is no real good path i would say um, it's more or less to learn the hard way i guess the first studies uh, that we di that we did, uh, we we started with approved drugs. And that is of course easier to get into clinical trials. But we learn by hand, and then it's uh, easier to get drug candidates when you have a good supply from the company behind. And then after a while, we can also uh, be better on on uh, doing more or less all the documentation and applications on your own. Uh, and I learned a lot through this uh, period. But it is, uh, you can't imagine how much documentation you need to hand, hand in to the regulatory bodies. It is. Yeah. I do uh, think there needs to be a lot better onboarding. And that's true here in the States also in terms of getting these solutions to the clinic um, or, you know, these, the work that's been done in the, in the bench, in the laboratory, get it to the clinic and, and expedite it, you know, to the, to the patients so that we can learn more quicker. I think some of this has, uh, I think the advent of COVID has kind of greased the wheels there a little bit, you know, as people are really, or scientists are really working together more collaboratively and trying to really address it. And I think it's a really great role model for, I mean, it's, it's been terrible, but it's also a good role model for how things could potentially be in other disease states, even like in type one. Um, yeah. and, I, I think it is. Uh, I think I've also learned that uh, a lot of academic researchers and perhaps uh, also uh, uh, doctors uh, they think of, of translating concepts. Uh, but I think it is very difficult to perform with having without having companies on board. You need yeah. those because uh, for scaling and for production, you, you need them. You can't produce a, a drug or an ATMP. Uh, academic, uh, academically. 
Yeah. And one of our, um, you know, missions is to try to um, eventually have a, a connection here on our, on our website and our project with companies and be able to, um, I guess, ease that um, connection. So that's where we're headed. Hopefully we'll continue. Um, I would also say, you know, what do you think are the biggest challenges to expedite research in T1D uh, outside of the ones we've talked about? And where do you ultimately see a cure coming from? Just sort of hypothetically, you know, we won't, we won't hold you to it. I think it's quite obvious that it is a very complex disease. And a very problematic situation is that it is uh, uh, occurring and ongoing for a very long time period before we can diagnose yeah. it, meaning that uh, the most beta cells ha have already been destroyed. And that is a problematic situation because uh, you need, if you, you, you would like to stop the disease, you need to have a uh, quite uh, thorough screening procedure to, to try to uh, find these individuals before they have lost man, uh, many beta cells at all. And that is a very problematic situation. Probably we need to find the cue for the treatment to use on newly diagnosed patients, but it will in the end be also a very difficult situation to, to offer it uh, very early on. Yeah. It will be because I think the pediatric endocrinologist's feeling is, you know, it's a very treatable disease and we can just use insulin. So we don't want to do any harm, et cetera. So it will be a, a fine balance to, to figure that out. Um, and now I would like to have, um, a, a, you know, a little Q&A with our young scientist. We have Rachel Gerland. She's a newly minted PhD. Well, not really PhD. She's just finished her postdoc and she's a young scientist starting her own laboratory. Um, and she has some questions. She'd love to talk to you. She's been following your work for a long time, and um, she's uh, she's um, she's here with us now. So welcome, Rachel, and and go for it. Thanks. Yes, um, I just wanted to say it is an honor to speak with you and ask you some questions because, as Monica said, I've been following your work, and it's an inspirational uh, path for a lot of us young scientists. So. I wanted to ask you about what you think are the key uh, qualities or the key things that you have done that um, have made you such a prolific scientist. What do you think you could give advice to young scientists to potentially follow in your footsteps? Great question. Uh, sometimes I think uh, there is a tendency to for everyone to follow the same stream where they, there is a hype around certain issues. And sometimes, especially if you are in uh, not a very uh, um, a muscle lab with a lot of people, you need to find other strategies. You need to go in another direction and try to uh, think differently and, uh, and try to identify other problems and sometimes uh, I think one thing I have done uh, over the years is to look at other fields, other diseases, and try to find parallels. Uh, uh, when I worked a lot with vascular engraftment, uh, I looked in the cancer field, actually, how, how cancer cells vascularize, uh, the triggers, uh, and so on. 
because that field was tremendous while uh, studies on uh, islet vascularization was very meager. So, uh, and also the same for the technology, you can look at different fields and try to adopt strategies uh, uh, from there actually. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, as a biomedical engineer, I think we have a nice background of a lot of different fields that we can kind of um, mesh together to come up with ideas. So um, hearing you say that means maybe I'm doing something right in terms of trying to get inspiration from other fields. Although I do think I maybe pigeonhole myself a little bit. So um, that will uh, inspire me to look at other, other fields. Um, so I wanted to touch base again on some of the experiences you've had because you've had so many diverse experiences. You've been in academia, you've collaborated with industry, you've been in the clinic, you've done it all. So could you highlight some of the similarities and maybe even differences between these three, three areas and what um, strengths each of them have perhaps? Well, it could both be an advantage and a disadvantage to do a lot of things, of course. Um, because uh, you seldom get very highly specialized. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. I, I, I feel that I, I lose the component of, of uh, in-depth knowledge in some areas, of course. But, but uh, on, on the other hand, you need different persons in a lab. Uh, and uh, we have more holistic approaches to see th uh, things and, and, and also understand uh, the clinical situation to uh, and in, uh, understand the experimental situation. I, I live in both worlds, so to say, and uh, I, I use that and try to bridge the different uh, milieus and, and, uh, and how they think actually. Uh, and perhaps as uh, you, uh, with your background, could bridge engineering and medicine in a, a very good way. I, I think it's good to, to uh, understand uh, other fields and, and uh, as I mentioned, try to learn from them because it is then you understand uh, you may, uh, if, you look at, uh, if you look at one thing, you may miss everything that is around, I think. Mm. Okay, yeah, so I will, uh, yeah, I do try to keep my eyes open, but what do you think yours if you said that you've had multiple experiences <clears throat> and it may be hard for you to be specialized but what what would you characterize yourself as being the strongest in i guess great question um well i uh, i think that uh, the translation is my um, my best part nowadays, uh, understanding how you can take something from, from the experimental situation into the clinic. Uh, um, I'm not an expert in molecular biology techniques, especially not anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, but understanding the culture and, and how uh, things can proceed into a clinical reality, I think uh, uh, there is a lot of misunderstandings there, but, but uh, I have that experience now. Yeah, I think it would be cool to get maybe a master class from you on potentially doing that, because I think a lot of scientists don't really know what that world is like, and it would be nice to get advice from 
um, people about um, how to do that. So on top of that, um, picking back off of that, I wanted to say that like from my perspective, it seems that clinical translation and islet transplantation is especially limited and there hasn't been that many studies um, involving that. However, you have had experience with that, especially with um, beta O2. So I wanted to ask if you could share some notable lessons that you've learned from these first in human studies and what advice would you give to groups trying to um, translate their ideas? I think that it is important to understand the differences, uh, for example, in type 1 diabetes uh, pathogenesis research, you need to understand that uh, findings in, in experimental models may not just be working in humans and understand and try to uh, think of uh, and look at the differences in, uh, in, uh, in clinical samples and, and the normalized to try to, to understand if this uh, intervention may work actually. And for example, in your field with regard to uh, islet transplantation, encapsulation, and so on. I think uh, a major uh, drawback of most studies have been that they don't see the problematic situation of scaling up through the size of animals, meaning that a strategy that works extremely well in mice and possibly rats will not uh, work very well uh, in humans because you need to implant so many more cells in the in the capsule and the human beta cells are much less effective actually than uh, rodent cells, meaning that it will be even more cells needed. So how would um, a group try to overcome that? Would you recommend maybe large animal models before human or I've also heard the uh, notion that, oh, you should just get to human studies right away because that's where you learn the most. So what's your opinion on that? Well, uh, if you have the access of, of uh, large animal models, uh, it could be a way, of course. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I think that already from the beginning, when planning uh, the intervention, you need to, to uh, take this into consideration, meaning that if you are macro-encapsulating, you will have certain problems when scaling up and you need to address them all from the start uh, because uh, you could have very beautiful publications uh, in small animal models, but we, it will never work in, in the largest situation. And therefore it's, well, it could be a good scientific career, but it is not of benefit to the patients in the end. Okay. So you need to consider it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all that uh, insight that you have given us, I think, since there are so few people that have experience with these kind of things, it's really valuable that you can share um, some of the lessons that you have learned in your career. So thank you. Yeah, I also think that um, Rachel's idea of uh, the master class in scaling is an excellent one. And so maybe we'll be calling you soon and see if you're up for something like that to our audience, because that is really something We've had many conversations here with young scientists all over Canada, the US, uh, Europe, that uh, people are really interested in that. And uh, you're an expert there. So uh, please answer the phone when we call again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, all kidding aside, the, um, 
yeah, we, we think you would be a fantastic person to give that masterclass. And um, I also would just like to say that um, we, we really appreciate your time and your, as Rachel said, your expertise. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, we wish you all the best and hope that all these, everything you're doing in, the, in your laboratory is not too impacted by the pandemic and that, uh, that uh, you'll be get, you know, back in action and, and getting things to clinic uh, in no time. So thanks again. Hey, it was a pleasure to contribute. Indeed.